my name's Greg. I'm an addict. And I know we already did this, but I'd really like us to take another moment of silent meditation, uh, if you will. Thank you, God. Um, I said my name, and I am an addict. A uh, long time ago, I started saying, I am addiction, and I am. Uh, I'm also recovery. I'm also insanity. I'm also sanity. Uh, catch me on a good day, you might get whatever you're looking for. <laughs> um, let me tell you about how I got up here. We drove up about, what, two hours ago, two and a half hours ago? Because it tells a lot about this program. Um, we left Marietta fairly early Friday morning. And we made it to Knoxville, and the tachometer went. And we were stuck out on the east end of Knoxville at some rinky-dink service station waiting for the mechanic come, to come back for about three or four hours. I'm sitting there in the car playing with electronic game. Lois is doing a crossword puzzle. The kids are fighting in the back seat. Um, and someone says, Greg! And, you know, my brain registers someone knows me. <laughs> and I look up, <laughs> and lo and behold, there's one of our members who just happened to drop by this junk shop uh, to get some junk parts. Um, and I figured God sent him, so I followed. And he put me up, we made it to a meeting. The car is still in Knoxville, um, but one of the guys at the meeting has a dealership, and he let me a brand new car drive up, and here I am. The point I want to make with that little story is I went against all my natural instincts, uh, and if I followed my natural instincts, I wouldn't be here. See, I was supposed to be in Knoxville last night. I don't know why. I don't know who for uh, but I was supposed to be there. I'm convinced of that. Uh, my natural instincts... I'm one of these people who used to leave cars on the side of the road. <laughs> you know, ah, you know, walk away. Uh, left to my own devices, you know, after that attack went down, and, and, you know, after two or three hours, it cooled down long enough. It started up just fine. I would have tried it. I would have gone for it. You know, heck with patience. You know, that, that vulture on the poster that says, Patience, my ass, I'm going out and kill something. That's, you know, that's Greg. Um, you know, here comes Tad, and he says, Hi, Greg. And um, I had seen him in a convention a while back, a couple of years ago. And um, my natural inclination would be to not deserve his help and say no, because it was very, very difficult for me to 
receive. Extremely difficult. It's still tough. Um, but I followed. Uh, my natural inclination definitely would not to be not to recognize God working in my life. You know, to think of that, think of that as a coincidence. To think of that as saying, "Oh well, <laughs> I'm waiting for the mechanic. He knows what he's doing." Um, you know, that would have been my natural inclination, but I didn't do that. Uh, my natural inclination at the meeting would not be to accept um, help and a guy offering me a car for the weekend. Um, you see, because I was very, very proud of my self-sufficiency. I was very proud of the fact that I could make it on my own. I was very proud of the fact that I had it all together. And that was even when I was dying of this disease. I mean, rapidly. I'm not talking about slowly. I'm talking about, you know, I did not know that any way could survive another six months. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my using. It's really kind of dull because I never did anything. Um, I missed out on all my teenage years. Uh, I was loaded. And I was, you know, I was too loaded to, to participate. You know, the guy steps off the moon, you know, another step for mankind. That, that, that's, I nodded out and missed it. Um, Monterey Pop Festival, all those great, famous musicians. I was there. I have a ticket stub. I don't remember. I was too loaded. Uh, I know I was there. I can remember wandering aimlessly. Uh, you know, I finally found these friends of mine, and they put me in a blacklight room for three days to come down. Um, you know, that's what it was like. I never did anything. Uh, I never was arrested. I never was hospitalized. I never was in treatment. I never, um, I never did a lot of those. I never did an armed robbery. I just used every day for 15 years, from the time I was six, seven years old till the time I was 23. That's all I did. Um, I started using uh, because I was a fat kid, and they thought uppers would do me good, and I loved them, and I abused them right from the beginning. By the time I was 10 years old, I was taking uppers, downers, and tranquilizers daily. Uh, and I didn't do anything else until I found out there were other drugs when I was in high school. I had a love affair with, you know, pills and weed and hash and that family for a couple of years. I had a couple of year love affair with acid. And I had a couple of year love affair with heroin. And it kicked my butt. And that's all I did. Now, that's the story of my using. There are a lot of feelings that go in there that are a lot more important. Because, you see, I didn't identify on the level of experience because I came around Narcotics Anonymous and all I heard anybody talking about um, was, you know, 15 years in Folsom Prison, uh, coming to the program off death row, uh, quarter-sized holes drilled in people's heads after the shock treatments, you know, to relieve the pressure on the brain caused by addiction. Uh, that's what I heard about in these in our meetings, and I didn't identify with that. I didn't. I wasn't like that. You know, I wasn't that addict in naked lunch, sitting on the subway, gouging a hole in my leg and pouring the dope in. I wasn't like that. I came to the program 
married, two cars, apartment, job, and dying. I felt all used up. When I say the program, I mean Narcotics Anonymous. I've never been an active member of any other fellowship. I've attended some meetings, but Narcotics Anonymous is home for me. Um, I was tired. I was 23 years old, going on 105. I'd done everything. I'd lived my life fully, and I was ready to die. There were a lot of things that created enough pain for me to ask for help, and I'd been looking for help for about a year before I got here. I'd been trying, you know, psychologists, and I tried getting married, and I tried the church, and I tried this, and I, and nothing worked. There wasn't any place to go. That's that's one of the strongest resentments, feeling again, I hate to say that word in this context, but that's what it really is. Resentments aren't all bad. Um, that I have is that, that desperation and that hopelessness I felt when I, when I found out there was no hope for addicts, that addicts did not recover, uh, that, that there was no one out there who gave a shit about us, that we were and still are the only unprotected minority, just about. Um, there are a few others, but we're one of them. Uh, and people didn't care about dope things. I can remember early in my recovery, I went on a 12-step call one time, picked a guy up. Um, and he went into convulsions, and we took him to a uh, the emergency room, and, and they said, I'm sorry, we don't treat addicts. You know, and he died in those convulsions, not in the hospital. They said, driving 50, 60 miles away through rush hour traffic in Los Angeles, uh, which is, you know, it sounds easy, but, you know, it can't be done. Um, you know, I can remember that. No one gave a shit about us. And by and large, I don't think, you know, I guess society is shocked now. I, every time I pick up a magazine, Zane or something, I, I, I hear them talking about, you know, drug problems or the epidemic and all this shit. But um, by and large, I think most people don't give a shit about us. This is the only place in the world where people will love me because I'm an addict, not in spite of the fact that I'm an addict. You are the only people in the world who accept me for Greg and who I don't have to be somebody else for. That's one of the reasons I love you all so much. You know, I look out there and, and, you know, it feels like I know a third of you. And you've probably met a third of you. Um, so, you know, for a lot of you, this is going to be old hat. My story is always different um, because I just talk and whatever comes out, comes out. Um, I want to talk about what's happened since I've been to the program more than what happened before I got here. You know how to use. You know, I love it when somebody says, I can't use anymore. You know, bullshit, you can use. You know how to do that good. Uh, staying clean's a problem. No, we can use. Anybody here never used? <laughs> I don't see any hands. You know, um, the story of my recovery. Thank you, Dave. It was doing just fine before, I think. <laughs> It works, don't fix it. 
Um, I move a little when I talk and I gesture, so I'll move out of the range of the mic every once in a while and you won't be able to hear me, but you know, fill in the words with anything you want, it probably doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, my story can, you know, I can sum up my story in, 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 in a sentence or, or what I'm here for. You know, my name's Greg, I'm an addict, I have this disease that we share. You know, I came here because I could no longer continue to live the way I was living. I've been clean for a while. Living clean is a hell of a lot better than it was living using. And I ain't giving up my chair. And the rest of it is, is, is frills. The rest of it is, you know, add-ons and neat little things. And, but that's what I got to say. You know, I'm standing here because I believe in Narcotics Anonymous. Because my life today is so much more than I ever expected it could be. I'm standing here because I have a love affair with life, you know, and I've given up that love affair with death. Okay, I came around the program, and I didn't identify. I used twice after I came here. I don't call them relapses because I wasn't even here. Um, I'd gotten to the point where I was getting pretty desperate. You know, I played the game. Oh, I can get a couple. I shot heroin for, I had one run that lasted two and a half years. Uh, I was using between a quarter and a half ounce of heroin a day. And I'd been trying to kick for a year. And I'd been waiting six months for the connection to find some dolphin. You know, um, I thought she was done. It shows you how slick I was. <laughs> you know. Um, I gave up on that notion. Uh, I, I got desperate and I started calling around looking for help. And someone said, are you eligible for Narcotics Anonymous? And I said, I don't know, what do you have to be? And they said, well, we don't know either, but here's this phone number. <laughs> I came here through a referral service. And those of you who in your PI efforts ignore referral services, please don't. <laughs> because, you know, that's how I got here. <laughs> and we talk a lot about hotlines and all, but, you know, don't, don't ignore the referral services. Everybody, everywhere needs to know about us and how to get to us. Uh, because if they don't, people die. You know, it's kind of like that first tradition. If we're fighting, people are dying. That's what it boils down to for me. Um, I talked to a man who later became my first sponsor. Um, the first question he asked me was, do you have a car? And I said, yes. Evidently, cars were in pretty short supply. Um, this was some time... I don't know exactly when it was. I could probably figure it out. Um, he said, good. And he said, come to a meeting tonight. There's a meeting. And it was about 30, 40 miles from home. And I was kicking. I was like, I'd had my, this was a Tuesday. I'd made the call. I'd had my last fix of my run the day before. So I was like, you know, 30 hours in the kicking 
a decent habit, and I was sick, and I wasn't going to make it to any goddamn meeting that night, and besides it was too far to drive, and I didn't know that part of town, and no, I think I'll pass on that. He said, well, there's another meeting over by where you live on Thursday night, and I, ca- you know, I counted up, you know, okay, Thursday's going to be almost off four days, and I might make it. I might make it. Um, and I promised that man that I would go to that meeting. I don't know why I promised him, but I did. I said, I promise I will. He said, you're going to go? Aren't you? Yeah, I promise. Uh-huh. I promise. You know, I was good at promising. Um, I promise you anything. You know, my best game out there when I got busted by somebody, like my folks or something, is I'm wrong. You know, I know. I'm terrible. I'll never do it again. And I go about my own damn business, do whatever I want. Um, I made a lot of promises in my time. I was not defiant. I was, you know, I was into avoiding fights. Uh, I don't know why that was. I hurt a lot of people when I was really young by accident. And uh, I got petrified of, of hurting people physically. Just with words. And I learned the language well. And I would use it against you. And you, if you got into a conversation with me, I would not allow you to leave a human being if I didn't like you. Uh, that was my viciousness. My violence was centered around that. More so than the ripping and the running and the beating people up and shit like that. Uh, you know, because when I, when I got into such, I thought back, you know, little things like breaking the kid's, kid's leg playing kick the can. Or, you know, the time I nutted up in third grade and broke a kid's back, you know, behind blind rage. Or, you know, 10 years old, giving my mom a big old hug and cracking three ribs. Um, I didn't want to hurt you physically, but I didn't want you to be human either. See, because I didn't think I was human. I really conceived of myself as a mutant, something not quite human, a throwback, a genetic freak. Um, I hear a lot of people talk a lot about a lot of different things, but most of us feel like we're different. You know, I guess the classic one is, is you know, the spaceship landed, they went out and explored, and I got lost as a little kid, and they took off, and someday they're going to come back and find me, and everything's going to be okay. Um, you, know. I, you know, I didn't think that. I, I've heard that said uh, from a couple of people. But I still was out there looking for that magic most of my life, that person, place, or thing that was going to make everything okay. And I thought it was drugs because I learned a lesson when I was first taking those pills that if you, if you take something, you either are, feel, or act better. You really are better. It makes you better. It makes you feel better or it makes you act better. And I lived by that for a lot of years and I found out it was a lie. You know, I found out it was bullshit. Anyway, coming back, I promised this guy. I don't know how I get... I do that. You know, that's part of my disease. Um, part of my obsessiveness. That, I, you know, I go... Ooh. You know, uh, my head is kind of like Monty Python most of the time. And every once in a while, I, I forget not to listen. Uh, if I listen, it, you know, goes... You know, uh, and I'm lost. But back, I you know, it's amazing. I, I only got off the topic for how long? About five minutes? You know, shit, I used to get off the topic for years. You know. Oh, yeah, I don't know. 
Anyway, getting here. Um, I went to that meeting that I promised I'd go to. I don't know why I kept that promise, except I was real desperate. And I was real afraid of you because I didn't think I was an addict. You know, I, I knew I had some problems, and I knew I couldn't stop using the stuff. And, you know, I was scared, and I was hurting, and I was ready to die, but I wasn't an addict. Because, I, you know, like I said before, I, I'd read about addicts. You read about them in newspapers, and you see them on TV, you know, raping nuns and beating up little old ladies for their quarters. And, and you know, I never, the closest I ever got to that was taking my, my grandparents' Social Security check. Uh, you know, I wasn't out there doing that, and that's what, isn't that what an addict does? You know, and I was afraid of you. And I wanted to, I wanted to make a real good impression, so I bathed, and um, I spent a lot of time getting dressed up. I wore a three-piece black suit and tie, uh, because I didn't want you to know who I was, you know. I came in there, and I, I guess there were about between 20 and 30 people in the room, and they asked me to talk, and I don't know what I said. Probably something like, well, you know, yeah, I think I may have a little, a little problem. It's not really too bad, you know. Um, you know, no one chimed out, then why the hell are you here? But, you know, um, but I know people were thinking about that or going, yeah, I can remember saying that. Um, I just downplayed it because I was different. Um, I used <clears throat> the Sunday after that, that was a Thursday night, uh, behind lack of sleep, because I hadn't slept since the previous Monday, and I was still sick, and uh, I knew how to sleep. You know, I knew if I went and geezed, I'd go to sleep. And I did, and I did. I really don't remember much more of that first meeting, by the way. I do remember one thing, and I want to share that with you. And someone said I never had to use again against my will. And I understood what they were talking about. You know, I didn't have to shake my head and say, what do you mean against my will? I knew about that. You know, because I'd gotten to the point. You know, <clears throat> a lot of you probably experienced that. But, you know, remember sitting on the john backwards, and um, you can't get a vein. And you got blood coming down your arms, and you're sitting there just real hopeless, saying, God, why do I do this? I remember that. I remember that real well. Um, that's pretty hopeless. You know, I had a lot of experiences like that. Uh, those are the things that brought me here, along with a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, I used that one time behind lack of sleep. I came back to the meeting the next day, and back in California where I got clean, um, they didn't give out white chips or recognize one day clean. What you did was you stood up for a month. You know, they said, do we have any newcomers here with their first month clean? Please stand up. And it was embarrassing. It was really embarrassing. Um, you know, it wasn't so embarrassing for me because I only had, what, three, four days a week. But think about the people who had gone out and relapsed. Everybody in the fellowship knew. I mean, there were only 200 people in NA. Everybody knew. If you weren't at the meeting for three nights running, you were using it. You were using Because we all knew each other. Um, I used one more time. 
after that, one week to the day after that, it was also on a Sunday. You see, during the intervening week, I had huh, regained my recovery, and uh, I went out seeking someone to carry this message to. And I went to see one of my old using partners, uh, and I brought him to a meeting. You know, they said, bring him to a meeting. So I brought him to a meeting. You know, and his response to the meeting is, this is bullshit, I'm going to get fucked up. And, you know, and my response is, you can't do that, you'll wreck my recovery. You know, all seven days of it. Um, I bought and we used my outfit. Uh, really, I, want, I just wanted to use. And, uh, you know, I never want to forget that. That was October 25th, 1970. And that was the last time I've used anything. Uh, and that begins my recovery in Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, and I have never been so sick in my life. I went immediately back into withdrawals. Not only that, I got trash fever and was shaking so bad I couldn't lay on the bed. And I just never went. I, I mean, that was worse than kicking it a week and a half before. And I tell you, I never want to forget that because I quit caring whether or not I qualified for Narcotics Anonymous. And real quick, you know, I start saying, that's my chair, and I will fight you for it. I don't care if you accept me. I don't care if I fit in. I can't do this anymore. You know, and that was really kind of my first surrender. Maybe not my first. It took a surrender to get here. I believe that, that recovery is a series of surrenders. I also believe that recovery over a period of time is a process of simplification. And those of you who are trying to figure out how this program works, get a sponsor and call him when you're through. Not only this, does this program not figure out, but my figures broke. I mean, I came here to the program with a lot of ideas, and they were, I, I swear, some of them were good ideas. I used some of the things I learned using in my recovery today. Of course, there was most of the shit that was killing me. They told me when I came around, 90% of what goes through your head is bullshit, Craig. Don't forget that. And I figure, you know, after 15 years, it's down to maybe 75%. So, you know, that's good. You get a percent a year. I mean, that's really good. Um, you know, I didn't know the stuff that was killing me from the stuff that was okay. I couldn't tell the difference. You know, I, I spent a lifetime going for fried ice cream. And I didn't learn. Somebody bring me fried ice cream, and I'd go, that looks like shit. <laughs> and the next night I'd be there saying, can I have some fried ice cream? Um, you know, that's what it was like. Or, you know, if you want a more graphic one than that, you know, you, you put your hand, I've got a scar here somewhere from hitting the stove and going, you know. Did you know that you're liable to stick, keep sticking your hand on the stove till you find out it burns? Uh, isn't that like us? 
We don't know the rules. Uh, that's something that I think is real important and I've begun to talk about a lot. Uh, when you get here, I really suggest you work hard at learning the rules. You know, people say, don't have a relationship for your first year. I say you damn well better, but it's not the one you think. Um, you know, you better have a relationship with a sponsor, you better have a relationship with your higher power, and you better have a relationship with yourself. Um, and you better have made some friends. You know, uh, I'm one of these people, I, you know, I have moved from town to town to town. One move I made, it took me a month to go to a meeting and meet new people. Actually, I haven't moved that much. I've been, I lived in California. I made like a couple of moves in California. I moved to Oregon and I moved to Georgia. You know, but I, I was almost everywhere for at least three years. And, you know, I got, I got this, this handle of, of, well, where are you living now, Greg? <laughs> um, and I, you know, I really don't deserve that. <laughs> Still screwing with the microphone, Dave. <laughs> I didn't say I was a nice guy. <laughs> okay, I'll, you want me to stand between these two? Okay, yes, Master Boss. Can I aim them at me? Thank you, Dave. Watch the, I can't see the little lights from here. <laughs> you watch them for me. <laughs> um, you know, I don't really quite remember what I was talking about, but <laughs> it's okay. Relationships, uh, recovery is all about relationships. Uh, I really believe you should hold off on having a love affair until you write an inventory and take a good fifth step. Learn what the rules are. Quit going for fried ice cream. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to talk about the steps. There are really two things I want to talk about it at a little bit of length. Because um, I like to talk about them because they're real meaningful to me. Uh, one is some thresholds we go through in recovery. Not all of us, but certainly a lot of us go through. And the other is the steps, because you know, I believe in the steps. Um, I did everything I could do to avoid working on the uh, My My initial recovery was based on substitution. Um, I gained 180 pounds in my first two years. Um, that's a lot of meat. I doubled my weight. We have anybody here who weighs 180 pounds? I like to do this. Stand up, Dave. I gained one of him. <laughs> That's a lot more graphic than saying I gained 180 pounds. Um, see, because I went back to that old pattern that I had when I was a child, that if you eat something, you either are feel or act better. Uh, certainly feel better and helps you get away from your problems and you don't have to compete socially. Uh, you can put a barrier between you and every other human being uh, in your own body. I've also had a 
recent thought with that. About two, well, about two years ago, they started pulling my teeth. Um, and I went through the whole loss of youth thing, and it fucked with me. And, you know, I went back to food. And one of the terrible things about it is I knew exactly what I was doing. I was very aware of it. I, I, I suspect that it's easier to go through when you just think you're crazy. Um, rather than when you know you ain't doing what you need to do for you. When you know, know you aren't surrendered. Uh, that'll kick your butt. I mean, thinking you're crazy, you know, we thought we were crazy for a long time. But know, knowing that you're violating the principles you choose to live by, that'll get you. That'll get you quick. Um, and I did for a while, enough to gain about 60 pounds. Uh, I want to come back and talk about some of the other substitution. I just kind of run, rattle through them, but some people always identify with them. Reading's a good one. So I like to sit up all night and read a book, but if you're doing it three, four nights in a row, you know, falling asleep on the highway on the way to work, that's addiction. Just one more chapter, and I'll go to sleep. I'll just read the first chapter of this next book of the series. I bet my life that I can put it down in 15 minutes. Now what it boils down to? That's addiction. Um, sex, that's a good one. There was a period of time in my recovery where I could not sleep unless I made love with my wife or jacked off. Um, and, you know, it was an addiction. Uh, working. When I first came around the program, I had a problem because, you see, uh, I learned the hard way that managed alone is in bad company. Uh, alone time, solitary time for Greg was deadly when I came around. So I did things like I, I got off work at 3.30. My wife got off work at 5.30. That's two hours with Greg. God, you know, that's a long time. You know, you know I challenge you to live in here for two hours. Shit. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny. We sit here and we say stuff like that, but I know yours is just as fucked up as mine. I know you also think that there could there couldn't possibly be anybody as shut down as I am. I know that you also think that all these things that we think, if you ever knew what I was like way down deep inside, you'd reject me. You know, all these tapes that we play. I had a friend who died clean 15 years playing volleyball. Uh, he was in the program 50 years, and he died playing volleyball with a heart attack. And he used to say... Uh, I got this voice going in my head saying, Jack, you're a fuck-up. Jack, you're a fuck-up. Jack, you're never going to make it. You're never going to amount to anything. And I had that same tape. I had that going through my head. There is no way that you, you can function. Greg, you don't belong. You never. You don't deserve a good life. You don't deserve love and affection. You don't deserve to be happy. You know, you're such a terrible person. You're a fuck-up. You'll never amount to, you know. I had that going, too, and I bet that most of us had that going, because uh, that's part of our disease. It's one of those things that, that, above and beyond the using, I really identified with. See, that's what I really identified with when I came around here. It wasn't the using. 
it was the fact that you people told me things that I'd never told anybody about me. You told me things like, you know, every time I get someone, you know, well, I think the way you say it is you put me in a room with another human being and I've automatically got a problem. I don't know who to be. Because I feel both superior to and inferior to any, everybody. Because I've come at everything from at least two directions. It's that old thing, definition of a normie. You know, person with one personality or less. Um, you know, uh, I, I am so ambivalent. God, you know, uh, I'll just attack things from three, four, five, six different directions. That's why, you ever tried to go to a movie with a bunch of dope fiends? <laughs> Where there were six shows in the same building? <laughs> you finally went to the one you didn't miss because you were talking about it so long? You know, well, the last one's going to start. We better go. Okay. <laughs> you know, because you'd been discussing it, you know, having a group conscious for four hours. Um, you know. I mean, isn't that the way we, I mean, everybody's laughing, or a lot of people are laughing, so you must be that way too. Um, you know, it's called, can't make up your damn mind and do nothing, even if it's good for you, or won't. Um, again, I got caught in the sidetrack. I want to come back to substitution. Um, gems and minerals is a very good hobby. I just moved a month ago. Tomorrow, I guess, the first, Monday. And, you know, I carried that three-ton of rock one more time. I only moved eight blocks, but, you know, you still got to pick it up and put it in the truck and pick it up and put it on the ground. And, uh, you know, I went for it again. Um, and I've got some neat rocks. And I've got some ugly rocks that ain't worth shit. Um, but I'll take them. I, you know... Someday I might need that shit. <laughs> Heck, there are nails in my garage that I've had for at least ten years. <laughs> I haven't used them yet. You know. If I pull one out, I'll straighten it out and put it in a special little jar because I might need it. It's addiction. I am addiction. Um... And I went through all the things. There was a lot of other substitution, anything but work the steps. Um, oh, by the way, if you don't want to work the steps, don't work them. You don't have to work them to stay clean. You really don't, as long as you can stand it. Um, I, you know, there are lots of, I mean, I guess if somebody locked me in a little tiny room, uh, I would eventually eat up the mattress trying to get off on it. Or smoke it. Or snort it. And I imagine I'd get tired of licking the rusty springs. Um, and I'd get tired of snorting um, dust. And realize that that wasn't going to do it. And I guess that I could really get clean that way. Someone shoved a little bit of sustenance under the door once or twice a day. And no one ever came in that I could hit on. You know, or nobody ever exposed themselves to my insanity, uh, then I might be able to stay clean. The one thing that I believe separates us and Narcotics Anonymous 
from, you know, other people who try to stay clean a lot of different ways. This program has a lot to do with living in the real world. And that's a new answer. I mean, we've been trying it for, what, coming up on 34, 53? Yeah. Coming up on, on 35 years, a little over 35 years right now. By the way, the date in the book is wrong. It says July of 1953. It's August 17th. That's what it says on the minutes. The person who wrote them was probably loaded, so what the hell? It might be August 17th, 1953. Um, I came here. I went through that period of my recovery, substitution. You know, in the beginning, I I even substituted being clean for drugs, you see, because I was getting off on not using it. I don't know if anybody experienced that, but it felt so good not to have to, not to have to do all that shit, kiss the connections, ass, hustle, try and raise some hell of a shit, you know, find the vein, get up sick. And all that stuff. It felt so good not to have to go through that shit. That kept me clean a while. It was like a new drug. You know, it was just like it was when I found LSD. You know, and I started eating handfuls of acid. It was a whole new world opened up. And it, uh, wow, it was just like it was when I found morphine and heroin. A whole new world opened up. You know, here it was. I found out that you don't put nothing in, you get high too. You know, you get a different feeling. And that's what I was after. You know, I used to say, you know, when I was loaded, I'd say, Hey, Greg, what do you want to do? I want to feel good. And that's really not true. See, Dave, it works. I learned. <laughs> um, that really is not true. I, you know, I got to be honest. I just wanted to feel okay. Because it was never okay to be Greg. It was never okay to live inside this body and be me with my feelings. That was not acceptable. That's why I used, so I could feel okay. Um, I come around here, I got that high off of not using. You know, and I went through all the things, you know, the 90-day thing. <laughs> got it all together, I know all the words. <laughs> and then the bottom falls out. You remember, don't you? Uh-huh. Or that six-month thing that goes, you know, oh, my God, I knew I was sick, but I had no idea. <laughs> Either that or, is this all there is? You know, um, boy, I tell you, you know, you can't pawn it off on the drugs anymore at six months. You know, I quit using and I'm still all fucked up. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's pretty devastating, isn't it? I would venture to say most of us have to go through that threshold, um, you know, somewhere around six months. Watch them. Watch them. Watch them. Or the, you know, the things that happen right around a year. I, how many people here set a goal of a year? Bullshit. Come on, raise your hands. It's more than that. You didn't subconsciously or consciously set a goal of the year. I mean, you know, 
I think we all just about do that. That's a magic number. Isn't that a magic number? Wow, I got a year clean. I mean, we started the countdown with a year clean, didn't we? It's a magic number, isn't it? It means you're not a newcomer. Wrong. Wrong. Um, you know, just before a year, we get into that self-defeating stuff, you know. If you really succeed at this, that means you can't use anymore. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know. Or, or, you know, you're into failure because to, to succeed is worse. You know, and you self-destruct, sabotage. Or just after a year, after and you think, ha, I got it. I made it. It's all over. I graduated. <laughs> now I can do what I want. <laughs> um, have a relationship. <laughs> God help you. <laughs> Write an inventory first. Please. Um, you know, or the thing that comes around. I where, how many of you got chip system where you where you, you got clean? They give out chips. You know, and you're used to getting strokes on a regular basis. You know. You know, stand up, you, you come in and, and you know it's great. And you come in thirty days and someone comes up and says, Oh, thirty days. <laughs> Aren't you wonderful? And you love it, don't you? Yeah. Or three months, you know, 90 days. Oh, wow, that's great. Oh, boy, we just eat it up. You know, we accomplish something and we deserve that. There is nothing wrong with that. That's real and that's good. You know. But, you know, down the road a piece, when you're hitting 18, 19, 20 months and you had any strokes in 8 or 10 months, you're going, oh, this is boring. I thought recovery was fun. And sure it was fun when people were patting you on the shoulder every 25 minutes, you know, or every month. I mean, you can make it from one chip to the next, and that's what they're for. You know, but you got down there that celebrate that birthday, and you get the... I mean, that's really a fix for most of us, that first birthday. I mean, we walk on cloud for two days. Um, but, you know, you get down eight, ten months after that, and no one's kissed you, and called you sweetie, and told you how good you were doing. We're in trouble. You know, or that thing that happened, the things that happens around three years, that was the one I missed, I noticed first. I noticed that when I was about two years clean, two, two and a half years clean. You see, because back in the early 70s, there were not many of us who just went to Narcotics Anonymous anywhere. And I noticed something that Around three years, the addicts who went mostly to AA dropped like flies. 75%, that's a guess, of the ones that made a year relapsed between two and a half and three and a half. And I had two and a quarter, and I was saying, what's wrong? Because I don't want that. I didn't want to relapse. I didn't want that shit, but I saw them going through I didn't want to die. You know, I didn't want to see any more people blown away by a connection they were trying to get to know. Um, you know, I was scared. 
And I started looking at it, and I originally thought it was a 12-step thing. Um, you know, you can't give anything away that you haven't got. You, haven't, you know, it's that old, what message you're trying to carry, where you're trying to carry it, who you're trying to carry it to. I don't know, some of you have heard of that. That, that was a measure of what you were doing right. If you're trying to carry the message of recovery from addiction to PDA, you're in trouble. You know, to parents and kids. If you're trying to carry the message of, of uh, what's something else here, you ain't gonna fly. You know, how successful you are, you know, that's a good one. We try to carry that going. Um, it's not gonna fly. Because the only message that counts here is recovery from the disease of addiction. It's the only one that counts. Thank you, Dave. So I came to believe that that two and a half, three year crisis, for me it happened right around two and a half years, was tied with the first step. And really looking back on it, it was when I started really getting in touch with my spiritual illness. You know, it was kind of like that six month thing. Oh my God, I knew I was sick. But, you know, I just knew I, I was all screwed up mentally at six months. At two and a half years, I found out I was all screwed up emotionally. I mean, spiritually, and I was self-obsessed, and I had no faith, hope, trust. And I didn't really believe. And it devastated me. It devastated me. And I could try, I continued to try and do it my way beyond that. Uh, but at four and a half years, and this is something a threshold I see most people go to between, go through between four and six years. You know, I found myself sitting in the corner saying, this God shit everybody's talking about, it better be for real, or I'm fucked. Because <laughs> it took me four and a half years to run out of my own steam. It took me four and a half years to use up all my good ideas about how recovery should be. It took me four and a half years to realize that that was the second thing I had to turn over and trust my God with my life. Um, and I'm real serious about that. Because from that point forward uh, begins my recovery. It's funny, I said that about my last fix. But it's a different recovery. You know, this is a recovery of the spirit. A recovery of Greg the person. Recovery of Greg, the child of God. Like we're all children of God. And I really believe that began at that point. At that point where I didn't have any more answers. It's kind of like the beginning. There's another similar... Remember, <clears throat> in the beginning it was kind of easy to surrender. Because I don't know about you, but I drug my ass in here. And I had nothing left to lose. I was praying for death on a on about a daily basis. Um, and I had not, I, I didn't have much to lose. I was willing to do what you told me to do. And you know, uh, I was willing to go to any lengths. But you see, I started getting clean, I started working regular, and I started doing some of the things that, that happen naturally if we're not strung out. And I started thinking that I had something to lose. All these things that I had to lose. This bank account, this car, and this paycheck, and you know, these people. 
You know, it comes back down to I got nothing left to lose. You know, kind of like that Janice Joplin thing? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I have nothing left to lose, but I have a lot. See, but I have nothing to lose by following God's path because I've accepted the fact that mine don't work. But that took me a long time to get to that. And it took a lot of practice getting it to the point where I could live there most of the time. Most of the time means more than 50%. Okay? Um, it does not mean all the time. It does not mean almost all the time. It means most of the time. More often, I'm okay with my surrender and my relationship with my higher power than I am fighting. And that's a miracle. That's really a miracle. Because I am addiction. Um, I also went through a couple of other things that I don't really have. Oh, why, the reason I say these things is because I've, not only did I experience them, but I've I've met a lot of you that have experienced them. And, you know, when we get 15, 20, or 30 people saying they're going through pretty much the same thing in the same time frame, I start going, hmm, maybe there's something there. The last two that I want to talk about here, uh, I don't really have a lot of data on because I haven't met all that many people, but I made some major, major, major changes in my life following my eighth year. And I've met a few people who have also had some major changes in their life around that period. I also made some very major changes in my life um, around my twelfth year, or just following my twelfth year. Um, the reason I talk about these things... Uh, I used to call them crises because of what I started out with, the fact that all these people were dying on me that had some time claim. Um, but I changed that to thresholds because that implies that, that there's something better on the other side, that it's a graduation, that it's a passing uh, to another level. And that's what my experience has been. I also talk about them. So if you're sitting there you know, with um, 32 months clean, thinking, I'm really fucked up. I'm never going to make this progress. If they only knew. If you're thinking that again, you know, have hope. I believe it's a part of the recovery process. I think it's a threshold we must go through in order to more fully recover. Please don't fear those times. What I'd ask you to do when those times hit is go back to the basics. You know, and get in the meetings and get in the book and get with your sponsor and talk to people and give of yourself. That'll carry you through. That will carry you through. You will learn and you will come out the other side a better person. But people get scared when they think they're going crazy. I mean, I get scared when I think... I, those were scary times sometimes. Um, but I've come to believe that they're really something that we need to go through. They are a graduation. They're a threshold. Cherish them. Work through them. Don't run from them. Maybe we won't have to bury so many of them. 
Um, I also want to talk about the steps because I believe very strongly in the steps. And a lot of people ask me to talk about the traditions, but I usually do that in a different context. Um, the steps are very meaningful to me. I've thought about tooth and nail. And what I want to share with you is some of the things above and beyond what you normally hear. Uh, you know, you can get the dictionary definitions and stuff like that and read the, the basic text. And you, you know, you can get that somewhere else. But I want to share a little bit about what it's really been like for Greg. And I don't really encourage you to try any of this stuff. Uh, in fact, you can sit on your dead ass as long as you can stand it. Um, don't work the steps at all. But this is my experience and my understanding. And I found out a long time ago that it's wonderful what, some, what I say up here for you, you know, or what I hear somebody say from the program, it's wonderful what it says in the book. And it's wonderful what it says a lot of places. But what's going to keep me clean is what I got in here. You know, I can hear somebody talk great shit. It's like, you know, the way I respond after I talk a lot of times, because I really feel that way, is that if I can just remember all this shit, I might be okay. Um, you know, that's a trick. Um, the, my understanding of the steps and what I do in my life is the only thing that counts. What you tell me is a good idea, and what you do don't count unless I do it. I believe this is an action program. You know, don't tell me how good you're doing. Don't tell me how spiritual you are. You know, because you're probably bullshitting. You know, show me by the way you live. If you want to get somebody, you know, if you want to impress somebody in this program, invite them into your home. And let them see how you really live day to day. That takes all the gloss off of it, doesn't it? All the pretty words off of it. Let them see how you respond to a problem in your life. Let's, let's, let them see how you respond to a bounce check. Let them see how you respond to having a flat tire. Let them see how you respond to, uh, you know, standing up and talking. You know. Let them see how you respond in your daily life. Because that's the measure of your recovery. It's not your words. It's the way you live. Talk's cheap. You know, I told you what my, what my message was in, in, in two or three sentences. And I also told you the rest of this was fluff and gloss and bullshit. You know, um, it's my experience pertaining to that. One more time, the message is, I'm Greg, I'm an addict. I come from the same chip can that you come from. I'm clean. I like it. And plan to stay clean. My life's better. I want to remind you that because all this is based on that. Uh, first step, I really very, very strongly believe in the disease concept. I believe we have a physical, emotional, and spiritual illness. The physical is an allergy, for lack of a better term, you know. Um, I know all the data and all the, you know, the research. I've been exposed to that. I've read the articles. And, you know, what it all boils down to for me is that when I use, I break out and shit. Bugs <laughs> in my body, something happens. And I've come to believe that it isn't like I used to think, that it ain't the drugs. 
It's the fact that the drugs trigger something else, which is addiction. It's a two-stage thing, not a one-stage thing. Um, I also believe that I have an emotional illness, which at its most basic is uh, my addictive personality, my obsessiveness. The fact that I can take anything you know, and make it self-destructive. There was this old guy around the program who used to say, every time he talked, he'd say, we're the kind of people that could fuck up a wet dream. You know, and it's really true. You know, um, we will take anything and make it self-destructive. Uh, I talked about my substitution. That's taking other things and making them self-destructive. You know, not only did that rock hurt my back a month ago, but I've probably spent $40,000 over it over the last 15 years. I mean, that's addiction. It just sits. And it's pretty. You know. um, it's also that report card, you know, the one where you get one A in the one subject that you got turned on to, and the rest were Fs. That's a symptom of the disease of addiction. Did you know that? Um, it's that... How many people in here have really, really, really excelled at, at, at one thing? Been one of the best around you? You know, really been good at something? That's a symptom of the disease of addiction. Because we get so strung out on this one thing and so obsessed with it that we'll throw the rest of our life down the shit can, you know, just to achieve this one thing. That's called obsessiveness. And that's the symptom of the disease of addiction. And I believe the disease is spiritual in nature. And to me, that boils down to lack of faith, lack of hope, lack of trust, and most of all, obsession with self. You know, that feeling superior to inferior. It's when you walk in the room, you know, or it's me standing up here, and there are two people back in the corner having a conversation, and I just know they're talking bad about me. <laughs> and I care. And it's going to wreck my day. You know? And I think I'll go beat myself up because they're talking bad about me. Now, they're talking about the ball game and who they're going to sleep with tonight. <laughs> but I don't know that. You see, I don't know that. And my self-obsession says they're talking about me. It's like when we were kids in school and they say, you know, John, no, report the principal's office. And you go, oh, shit. <laughs> what did I do? Huh? You know, or you start stashing stuff, you know. And you walk in and, and the principal says, Johnny, I, I, I notice your attendance has been getting a little better. Congratulations. <laughs> or something equal to that. Um, you know, that insanity we live with on a daily basis, that self-obsession. Uh, it's also looking for things outside of me to fix me. Also looking for that magic, that person, place, or thing that would make it all okay. If I just get this job, everything's going to be okay. Or if I can just have that car, or this boyfriend, or this girlfriend, you know, it's going to be, everything's going to be fine. That's all I need. I can handle it. You know, that's self-obsession. I've come to believe that for me that all that stuff that really counts happens in here. Um, the first step is the hardest thing we ever have to do. Because if that access I used to mumble all the time. <laughs> the 
doesn't happen all the time anymore. Usually you can understand what I say. I mumble every once in a while, but you know, that's brain damage. Um, <laughs> the first step is the most difficult thing we ever have to do because it gives up, it asks us to give up the two things that are most important to us. Number one, our answer. Music. And the only thing we ever really loved. The only thing that ever made us feel all right. It asks, says, you're powerless over that shit. you got to give it up. My natural reaction to that is, whoa, wait a second, man. That's all I got. Well, you know, if the first step stopped there, it might be okay. But it goes on to ask us to give up the thing in which we take the most pride. Our scam. Our con. The idea that we can manipulate and control reality. Because it says, our life has become a magic. That's all I had, folks. And when you took that away from me, I had nothing. And, and that was a problem. And I believe that if you work the first step, you will be forced to work the second step. Or you'll kill yourself. You'll be forced to come to believe that even if you can't do none of that shit, there is a way, and there is hope. Um, because without that, I don't know about you, my experience with the first step is it's devastating. Um, the second step I skipped over the first time. I rubber stamped it. I got it together. <laughs> now what? Okay, I believe that. Um, little did I know. Little did I know that I was going to be kneeling there in the corner, you know, probably four years later, like I told you about. Used up all my good ideas. And then I began to come to believe. Because I didn't have a choice. I'm sorry to say. My recovery has not because been for philanthropic reasons or because it was so morally right or because... Um, because it was a good thing to do. My recovery has been because I couldn't stand it any other way. You know, and I had to find something or I was going to go use and die. You know, I get in a debate with a close friend of mine on a regular basis, and I can understand, and it's really just play on words, but I hear a lot of people saying recovery is painful. And I say, bullshit, it's lack of recovery that's painful. Recovery is relief from that pain. Uh, if you're hurting all the time, you're doing something wrong. I was told that when I came around, and I've come to believe that that's true for me. If I'm all fucked up, hurting all the time, I'm doing something wrong in my recovery. Now, I let my head play with me a lot. Now, there was this one time I can remember where I had this feeling, right here. And it was terrible. You know, and I knew my pro, it was right. I knew the hole had come back into my gut. My program had gone back out the window. I was going to use and I was going to die. And I went to talk to my sponsor. And he said, Greg, write about it. So I wrote about it. I wrote about this and I wrote about that. And I, you know, and I prayed about it and I talked about it in meetings. I called my sponsor four, five, six, seven times. You know, three days later, out came all this big old fart and I found out it was just gas. 
And the point behind that is the S on hawks. Because I took it so seriously. I've come to find out that nine times out of ten, and I'm crazy, there's a very, very simple explanation. It's one of the halts or minor physical distress. If I am nutting up, there is usually a very simple explanation. But being the dope fiend I am, I sit around trying to figure it out for two, three, four, five days, crazy, rather than just turn it over praying and asking for help. Rather than just reach out, I got to figure out. Remember, my figure is broken. So I figure in circles. I don't figure from A to B. I figure from A to A. And then I figure from A to A another way, and then another way, and then another way, and then another way. You know, it don't work that way. Um, I've come, had to come to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood it. Uh, one thing I want to say about that step, and that's just a comment on something that I've been coming to become aware of lately, that that step's a commitment. It probably meant the most simplest is a com commitment to live this spiritual path, to follow the spiritual path, to go ahead and fulfill the rest of the process that God gives us. Uh, I, feel, I believe that. It's a lot of other things, but that's something that's come up in the last couple of years that's been important to me. Just like with the fourth step, you know, I could go and I could tell you how to write a fourth step and what it means and all that. But you know the thing I found out? You know, my first fourth step was show and tell time. Here I am. There's something very special about letting someone know precisely who you are. But I don't think that's what the fourth step's about. You know, it says searching and thorough moral inventory. To me, that's an assessment of my morality. That's learning those rules. That's why I say write an inventory and do a fifth step before you have a love affair with anyone. Because, you know, I if you're like me, remember that you put me in a room with another human being and I automatically got a problem? I don't have good interpersonal relationships. I pick things that hurt me. I go for fried ice cream. Two or three times in a row. Two or three times in a day. Shit. And if I don't know that fried ice cream is bunk, and, and I don't want that, and I keep going for it, and then I wonder, why am I all screwed up? But I keep going for the things that cause me discomfort, that cause me dis-ease, that screw with me, that make me miserable, and I'll go for them. And I ain't aware of that till I find out what the rules are. It's kind of like, you know, a person who, you know, if we're talking about love affairs and stuff like that, a person who's really into heaven, um, settling down and having a long-term relationship, and they keep going out and looking for one-night stands, and they wonder why they feel all chewed up and spit out. Because they're going for something they don't want. Because they're breaking their own rules. Because they're violating their morality. And I really believe that's the greatest source of our pain, when we violate our morals. What I believe in, I have morals today. There are certain things I can do and certain things I can't do. There are limits within I must live. They aren't the same precisely as any of yours. I don't have to live within yours, but I damn sure have to live within mine 
if I want any peace of mind at all. And I didn't know what they were. And that's what the fourth step's all about for me today. But that's just been in the last year or so I've become aware of that. I still thought it was show and tell. Um, the fifth step is part of that process. Um, I don't have a lot of extra to say on the fifth step beyond what I hear a lot of people saying. There's a lot of magic that goes on there. Uh, my sponsor is very much more capable of perceiving my patterns and helping me learn what my rules are than I am on my own. Because if I do it on my... Think about this. If you're trying to figure all that stuff out on your own, what are you using to figure it out with? And if you have come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore your sanity, that implies to me that what you got to figure it out with ain't real swift. So I am taking garbage and figuring it through mishmash and expecting the right answer, and I will complain if it don't work out the way I want. You know, who was my source? You know, if I want somebody who can look at me and see me, I want somebody who can be objective. I don't want to do it myself, because I'm not objective. About me, I'm very personal. I've got, you know, I've got a conflict of interest. Shit. <laughs> you know. um, six and seven, you know, I want to share about because they're very special to me. Um, I had to simplify those way, way down because I got all screwed up trying to figure out what are defects, what are short, what defect am I, oh, I, you know, remember that spending two or three days jacking my head around, mental masturbation, and I was, you know, from point A to point A to point A to point like a flower? You know, that's what I did with six and seven. You know, I would spend days trying to figure out what defect was making me miserable. I would spend days miserable and crazy trying to figure out what was making me miserable and crazy, you know, and never take any goddamn action. All I did was try and figure it out. And I couldn't figure it out. I wonder why. Because I was miserable and crazy. How good do you figure when you're miserable and crazy? Because my head's broke. How good do you figure with a broke head? You know. I wouldn't reach out and ask for help or pray or read or go to a meeting. I'd try and figure it out. And I stayed miserable and crazy. I don't like to do that anymore, folks. I'm sorry. I have made a decision in my life that I have had all the misery. Well, yeah, on my better days, I make a decision. <laughs> that says... I don't have to live this way anymore, and I don't want to. There are days when I choose otherwise. Um, but most days I choose to live in the solution rather than the problem. Um, I had to simplify six and seven down. I really believe I only have one defect of character. A lot of you can disagree with this, but that's fine. I believe it's obsession with self. And I believe that expresses it in greed, lust, envy, sloth, all those 52 marks of character. Buddhists have. Um, you know, I believe that my self-obsession is my number one defect. And I believe that I'm powerless over my defects. It's plural this time, so I'm going back to the step. Um, I believe that my shortcomings are the manifestations of my defects. They're the actions. The defect is the motivation. 
It's kind of like, you know, I'm driving. No. When I came to the program, I could not go into the store without stealing something. Usually it was a pack of cigarettes, a pair of sunglasses, a paperback book, candy bar, something like that. I could not do it. There was part of me that says, take that. That's like the defect when I put it in my hand and then put it in my pocket. That was the shortcoming. Because, you see, the word defect implies to me that defective, no good ski, broken, defect, you know, um, something that I'm powerless over. You know, I relate six and seven to serenity for it. God grant me the surrender to accept the things I cannot change. I have these defects. I have these thoughts. I walk, I see the guys talking and they think they're talking about me. That's a defect. I can't stop that feeling, that thought. It's kind of like, my wife was reading a science fiction book a while back. And I think I shared this before, not tonight, but I know I've shared it before. I just don't remember where. Uh, and there was this real neat line in here. And they're about freedom, and it says freedom doesn't mean we get to choose what happens in our lives. It means we get to choose how we respond to what happens in our lives. You know, and that's what I'm talking about. I don't get to, you know, defects are what happens in here. How I respond to that, how I act that out, are my shortcomings. And I really believe the shortcomings go under that courage to change the things I can. I really believe that. My seventh step prayer goes, God, give me the strength and courage to live beyond my defects. Don't let me participate in my insanity. Because I learned that when I was early on on a much simpler level. You know, I'd ask people, what do you do with all these thoughts and stuff? And they say, watch it like a movie. You know, or they say, remember that acid trips? Remember those acid trips when all you had left was don't forget you took something? And I'd go, yeah. And I'd repeat it again and again and again. It's the drugs. This isn't real. You are going to come down. Don't forget you took Remember that? That's what I do with my life. That's what I do with my thinking and my feelings. I've learned I can't trust my thoughts. You know, because it was that movie like I was talking about. But my feelings are also suspect. You know, paranoia, false fear. You know. Um, my feelings will lie to me too. When they line up, it's sometimes okay. The best rule of thumb I've had for judging anything in this program, bar none, if I have a decision to make, is what does the program say? What's most consistent with these principles? It's so simple. If you've got a decision to make, ask yourself what fits the program best. And then do that, whether you want to or not. Usually when we you know, we start thinking that shit, we've already made up our minds, we're just not happy about it. Um, you know, do what the program says. Honesty, open-mindedness, willingness to try, reciprocity, anonymity, hope, faith, courage, all those principles, principles. <clears throat> Use those. If you have a decision in your life, ask yourself, what fits the program? What does the program say? You'll have an answer. That works. I don't, you don't know how many years of misery I had to go through to learn that. 
you know. I went through a lot of shit to learn that simple lesson. Years and years and years of going for fried ice cream. Just to learn to, you know, do what you're told, dummy. Um, eight and nine have become real important to me. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say four and five are clearing the wreckage of your past. I don't believe that. I think it's becoming aware of your past and learning the lessons of your past. And eight and nine are clearing the wreckage of your past. I don't believe that there are any act. No, I'll take. Let me let me rephrase that. I am not aware of any active amends I owe for my using days. I don't think that I did anything today that I need to apologize and make amends for. I didn't lie to anybody that I know of. I kind of joked around when I got here saying it's a rental car or it was a loaner. No, I'm on a I'm test mark, but that ain't, you know, that was, that was fun. That was in jest. Um, I didn't steal anything today. That one stop we made um, down just south of the, uh, down 77 south of the West Virginia line, um, and we got gas. Um, I didn't take that peanut butter bar out of the store like I wanted. I put my hands in my pockets. That's real good, game. That's a hell of a gift. That's one of the things I'm most grateful for. You see, because eight and nine, not only they set me through from my past, they're also probably my least favorite part of the steps. I hate that because it's humbling. I hate it. To go up to somebody and tell them that you, you know, you did them dirt. I mean, I'd almost rather not do it anymore than have to do that. That's what I do. Eight and nine are a tremendous motivator for me. They make ten real important. You see, because without without that, I'd still, you know, if it was easy to make amends, I'd still be doing that shit. I ain't one for living because it's a good thing to do. I like, you know, I'm still into pleasure. I'm still in the absence of pain, maybe rather than pleasure. Uh, but see, the tenth step is what helps me do that. People said when I came around, sit down at the end of the day and review your day. And that may work for you all, but that don't work for me. Because I can create so much shit in 24 hours uh, that it takes me weeks to get out of it. And, you know, while I'm working on that, I'm creating more shit. It really snowballs. You know, I can tear up a state in 24 hours. I can create so much havoc in my life and in the lives around me in the span of sunrise to sunrise that it's scary. And I know you can, too. Um, so i got to keep watch and keep track all the time. And one of the things I've learned to do is monitor myself. And there's some signs that come up in my life. Uh, there's some flag posts. There's some indications uh, that come up in my life that warn me. And there are also some relationships, real relationships. How am I doing with you? Am I really here with you right now? That's an important one. If the answer is no, I must do something. I really must. Usually that's 11th stamp if the answer is no. That's a good lead to 11. Um, how am I doing with my higher power? Am I, do I have anything going with him? Am I, am I aware of God's will for me right now? 
Uh, if the answer is no, I need to do something. Usually 11. It's funny, the answer depends a lot. Um, I've also found out, going one step further into, into the 10th step, that it's important for me to, to really sit down and look at some specific areas of my life periodically. Uh, not necessarily on a regular basis, but as they come up. That's another way I work the 10th step. I do all three of those things, but probably the most valuable is the monitoring. 11 is something that I need. You see, I got a problem. Um, the first thing that happens to me in the morning is my head goes on. <laughs> and it's two or three miles down the road before my feet hit the floor. And that's a problem. And I have to spend the first few minutes catching my head. Here you go, where are you? There you go. Okay, really? And, you know, that's called morning meditation. <laughs> Try it. Try it. My biggest form of meditation, the meditation that I have found consistently to be the most valuable to me, is getting my head and my body in the same top place in the present. And I have to do that a lot. I do that walking down. I did that just before I came. Remember I asked that little moment of silence? That's what I was doing. I was getting my body here. I was getting my mind here. I was getting my spirit here. And I was getting here now. See, because I tend to drift away from all that. I get off into all kinds of little things. That is my most effective meditation. I've done a lot of special meditations and really, you know, involved things, and they're really neat. Problem is, I have a tendency to get strung out on them like any other good thing. I can use that like dope, and I have to be a little careful of it. But focusing on the present and focusing on the here and now is something that always works for me. If I can really be here, now, in my body, with who I am with, I can get life's goodies. If I'm not there, I miss it. It's kind of like that old thing, you know, well, Greg, you've been clean 15 years. Who do you go and who, do you, who gives you answers? Shit, you all give me answers. God works through people. And he picks some of the damnest people to work through. I swear. But, you know, if I don't listen to you, I miss God. Because I never know who he's going to pick you to work through. You know, I better listen. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the 12th step and then I'll shut up because I know I've talked way too long. I really think the 12th step is a very beautiful description of recovery. If you carry it one step beyond the words. Um, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. A life based on an awakening of the spirit. That's recovery. A life based on the awakening of something greater than myself. A life based on something other than Greg's way. You know, that's a beautiful idea. That's recovery. Someone who is involved in recovery actively has a life based on the awakening of the Spirit. We try to carry this message to addicts, and I think that goes beyond just carrying the message. I think that's helping. That's giving. You know, and I was a taker, and I was good at it. I took life. I chased after and stole life. That was my approach. 
You know, today I try and give of myself. You know, whether that's just saying good morning to somebody at a job, some square, don't know what the hell's going on, say good morning. You doing okay? Or whether that's that that's standing up here, whether or not that's answering the phone at home. It's amazing. Um, a life based on giving is part of recovery. Practicing these principles in all our affairs. That means getting rid of the I wills and I wants and you know, my ways and doing it in a different way. Practicing spiritual principles in my life, all my life, the whole thing. And it sets me free. And one of the greatest revelations I've, I've had in recovery has to do with the nature of this program has to do with the nature of God I've learned that all my problems and all the stuff that goes on in my life boils down to a very simple question either God works or he doesn't and if he doesn't it doesn't make any difference either you guys have been bullshitting me for 15 years or you've been telling me the truth you can stay clean, learn to live and enjoy life, live by spiritual principles, awaken from the dead. I mean, that's what you've been telling me for 15 years. Either you've been bullshitting me or you haven't. I don't see any reason why you should. You know. Uh, but if you have, it's been a good 15 years. One thing I want to leave you with is um, some of the joy. We have something here. You can feel it in this room. There's something very, very special here. And I really believe that together we can not only learn to become real people, but we can make an impact on this reality, on this world, such as never been felt before. And all we have to do is what we're told. And all we have to do is live this way. And all we have to do 